Well, good morning, Genesis House. As our custom, let's stand and read the Gospel of John, uh, starting at chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom she loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and so the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him in Hebrew and said, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, know that every time we open your word, that you have something to say to us. And you designed the scriptures to be your communication to us about who you are and how you want us to live in this world. And as we learn from you today, through, the, through your word and through the Holy Spirit guiding us into truth, that we would um, glean from, the, from what you have to say to us and that we'd not only become hearers of the word, but doers of the word in our lives. And God, we care about how we represent you in this world and the way we function as human beings in a, in a culture that doesn't really to care too, too much about you at this moment. So God, maybe we be salt and light for you. And uh, it starts here. It starts in the training grounds. It starts with basic training here in your church. And we, we want to become uh, soldiers. And we have to get our basic training from you so we can go out and fight the fight. So God, I just pray that whatever you have for us today, that you'd shape our hearts and minds so that we become uh, pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we begin a brand new chapter in John, um, and that is chapter 20. And we're actually only two chapters away from finishing the book, if you can believe it, after starting two and a half years ago. So slow and steady wins the race. But as we enter these chapters, we conclude these, uh, John's Gospel with several of Jesus' resurrection appearances to his followers. And today we're going to be specifically looking in detail at his first appearance, which was to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. And we really pick up the story here in verse 1. Notice that in verse 1, Mary came to the tomb where Jesus was buried on the first day of the week. 
Now, in the Jewish culture, this would be Sunday. Because for them, the final day and the seventh day of the week was a Saturday, which was their Sabbath. So the Sunday was naturally the first day of the week for them. Well, when she arrived early in the morning, she, she saw something deeply concerning to her. Uh, the stone was, that was normally in front of the entrance of the tomb had already been taken away. Now, the reason this would have been such a surprise to her is that, that she actually was there the night of Jesus' burial. And according to Mark's gospel, she actually witnessed the stone being rolled in place. So being an eyewitness to the stone going in place, and then a couple of days later coming back and noticing that it was gone, and off the entrance was very surprising and alarming to her. So as she processed her emotions, she concluded one thing. She thought the grave must have been robbed. It had to be a robbery. And we know this because in verse 2, as she ran to tell Peter and John what had happened, she said this to them. She said, uh, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So again, she assumed that it was a grave robbery. Now, who the they were that she believed took uh, Jesus' body is not clear. Maybe she thought it was some random grave, ro grave robbers looking to make a profit, or perhaps it was the Jewish leaders. After all, they've been known already to show huge animosity to Jesus, and to, so to get rid of his body would be another ploy to, to uh, aggravate his disciples and to humiliate Jesus. But here's the key I don't want you to miss. And John lets us in on this so that we understand Mary's mindset here. See, the thought of resurrection, the, the fact that she believed that Jesus could be raised from the dead and alive was not even in her frame of thinking. She thinks it's a grave robbery, but resurrection is not in her mind. So the, the notion that he could be alive and well and walking and roaming the earth uh, and that God could be behind this was not even on her radar. Now clearly Mary's words impacted Peter and John, as after they heard her report of what they saw, they took off in a race towards the tomb. We pick this up in verse 3 and 4. It says, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Now why John records that he arrived first at the tomb, we don't know. Perhaps he was younger than Peter. Perhaps he was fitter than Peter and was more like Usain Bolt than... Uh, than Peter was. But regardless, even though he was the first to arrive, he wasn't the first to enter. Verse 5 reveals that John merely stooped down and looked in. And when he looked in, he saw the linen wrappings, which of course confirmed Mary's report that the body of Jesus had disappeared and was missing. But Peter, when he arrived, he did more than stoop down and look in. He, he actually barged in and went straight into the tomb. And he bore witness to exactly what John saw. And we pick this up in verse 6. Simon Peter came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. This are, these are significant observations that John makes, and if you've never understood why they're there, I hope to get some clarity to you now. These are important details because John lets us know as, 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 as his readers that Mary's assumption that the grave was robbed was an impossibility. The proof that there was linen wrappings there and a face cloth rolled up neatly was proof this could not have been a robbery, but something extraordinary had to happen. Let me just give you three, three reasons why. First, if this were a robbery, this would be uncharacteristic behavior of a robber to leave the crime scene in a neat and orderly fashion. I mean, if anyone robbed your house, how do you know? Because it's ransacked. 
Things are chaotic. They're ripping things out of place, looking for stuff. Here you come in and you have this linen wrappings intact and you have the, the face cloth neatly rolled up in a, in, a, in a roll separate from the linen wrappings. And there was no evidence of anything crazy going on in there. So again, how many robbers would take the time to, to fold laundry, basically? Secondly, if it was a robbery, they left the only items in the tomb that would have been worth anything. See, linens are expensive materials, and, and spices in those days were, were expensive commodities. So to leave linen wrappings and expensive spices in the tomb made no sense if you're a robber. But thirdly, if, let's say they weren't concerned with the items at all, but they were and making a profit, but just purely the body of Jesus. Why take the time to unwrap him to carry him out? Wouldn't it make more sense to just carry him out in the linen wrappings as opposed to unraveling him and then taking him out? <laughs> Furthermore, that he was flogged so badly he was marred beyond recognition. He was bleeding so profusely that his corpse at this time would have been rotting. You're not going to carry, carry a decomposing, rotting corpse out of the tomb and expect to go uncovered. If you want to get sneakily take the body away, you would take him in the wrappings already. So these are important details because John already lets you know that this, something extraordinary took place and he's already making the reader think resurrection. And we know John believed it. Even though the Old Testament scriptures that he knew had told him this was going to occur and hadn't understood it. Look at verse 8 and 9. So the other disciple, by the way this is John, uh, who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. He believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now the Old Testament scriptures that spoke of Jesus' resurrection were places like Psalm 1610. Let me just show you uh, Psalm 1610. It says this. This is David speaking. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This is quoted by Stephen as well. Or is it Peter? I should double check. It's either Stephen or Peter in, the, in his sermon in Acts. But here's the point. The resurrection was spoken about in, of the Messiah, was spoken about in the Old Testament. But these men at this point did not understand that the scriptures were speaking about this. And this, this makes sense, right? Because they didn't expect the Messiah to ever suffer. They didn't expect him to die. They expected their conquering Messiah. One to take over Israel and to be their king permanently. So they interpreted the, the scriptures through, through certain theological lenses about Jesus. And so therefore, when they came to passages like this, would have probably had other ideas about who Jesus was and what was going to happen to him. But regardless, at this moment, John um, looked at the evidence in the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings. He saw it was neatly organized. He, see, he saw that the face cloth was rolled up and Jesus was gone. There was no evidence of a robbery. And so he put two and two together and he believed, he believed that he must have risen. And later on, he would have been confirmed uh, this to be true. But after seeing the empty tomb, in verse 10, the disciples we see go home. And at some point during this time, as they go home, Mary then makes her way back to the tomb. And when she arrives, verse 11 tells us that she stood outside the tomb and she was weeping. Now the primary reason for her grief is revealed to us in verse 13, right? It says, when the angels say to her, why are you weeping? She says, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. 
So John tells us the reason for her grief is, um, is that she can't find Jesus' body, and she, this is a tragedy for her because she loved him so much. Now, her love for Jesus was understandable based on her past. You see, when Christ met her, her life was an absolute mess. Her life was an absolute mess. Uh, we know in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, that Mary was demon-possessed. She was demon-possessed when she first met Jesus. And Luke actually tells us that she had seven demons in her. So there was a plurality of demons in her. Now, the New Testament makes it obvious and tells us uh, in different places how devastating this would be to someone's life. Uh, whenever you see rec uh, records of Jesus doing exorcisms and, and performing miracles and people who are demon-possessed, they're always extremely violent people. And they, they seem to always incur infliction of pain on themselves and torture themselves and cut themselves and do all sorts of weird things and fall, fall into convulsions and all sorts of stuff. So people who were demon-possessed were violent, they'd often hurt themselves, they'd have, often have like seizures and go into convulsions, and uh, it, was a it was a terrible way of living. I mean, you remember that um, even one fellow had to be chained outside of the city because he couldn't be in the presence of people due to his violence. Now, we don't know if Mary was in that same situation, but the fact that the, re the record of all the people demon-possessed seemed to be in this behavior could very much have been her life. She might have been a cutter, uh, and self-inflicting person was very violent. But that also tells us that most likely she was, she'd fallen into idol idolatry. She must have at some point been messing with the occult and practicing witchcraft and invited demons into her life. And as a Jew, she'd basically fallen into the Canaanite practices and abandoned God. So in an act of mercy, when Jesus saw her, he cast this demon out and he restores relationship with her. And at this point, Mary devotes her life to him and becomes a financial supporter in his ministry. And we see that again in Luke 8. So you can see the pain of losing him and being so concerned of the body was so important to her. Un not only that, but the fact that he'd just been brutally and unfairly executed was also devastating to her. So these, this combination of things about Jesus and how much she loved him was all too much for her to bear. And she was weeping at the tomb. But as she was weeping outside the tomb, she looked in and saw something incredible. We pick this up in verse 12. He says, she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head, of, head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now the fact that two angels were in the tomb, one sitting at the head of where Jesus laid, had lain and the other at his feet signified that Jesus' disappearance had nothing to do with men but everything to do with God. There was no grave robbery here. This was God's divine activity. This was God's doing. It was his plan. But the, here's the thing, church. She was so overcome with grief, so overcome with grief, she didn't even recognize the evidence that John had used earlier to believe that Jesus had risen. And she also missed the significance of the presence of the supernatural. She didn't even recognize, like it was just like a nonchalant conversation between her and the angels. And she didn't even, even register in her head that God was involved in Jesus' disappearance by the presence of the angels there. So her biggest hope in the midst of grief is what? To recover the missing body of Jesus. To give him a proper burial and to pay him the honor and respect she thought he deserved. But this was all about to change. 
And we see this starting at verse 14. It says, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Why Mary failed to recognize Jesus immediately uh, is often debated. And why she mistook him from the gardener is unknown. But here's some suggestions of why this may have been. One, uh, because she was weeping, her eyes could have been so blurry that uh, she would just, his physical identity would have been unknown just due to the fact that she was crying so much. And anyone who's wept a lot knows that sometimes your vision can be a bit blurry. Others, though, have suggested, and I think this is a valid uh, option, um, is that the, Jesus had often presented people from recognizing him after his resurrection. It was a supernatural doing on Jesus' part. Remember the road to Emmaus when um, he starts speaking to the disciples on the road? And look at what, look what happens here in Luke chapter 24. It says, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them in his resurrected form, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So Jesus intentionally withheld his identity in order to have this conversation and then revealed it to them later. So perhaps this is what happened in the tomb as well. I, this is, but I think this is, this is my leading, this is the third option. And, I, and again, I'm, you, can, you can pick either one of these three, but this is my pref preference. Um, I think it had to do with her mindset. It had to do with her mindset. See, because she was so convinced that Jesus was dead, and so wrapped up in her grief, the last thing she was expecting was to see a Jesus who was alive. And so her mindset didn't allow her to initially recognize him. And I experienced this. It's really funny. Uh, I wish my mom was here today, but she's not. Uh, but uh, about two years ago, I, I go up to the Northwest Territories to help my mom move. She'd sold her house, and she, I knew she was on her own, and she would never be able to accomplish that task on her own. The house is too big, and mom was just, uh, God love her, but she's just too old <laughs> to get all that done on her own. I mean, she can't lift furniture and sell things. It's just, there's just no way, right? She listens to my sermons, by the way, so she'll, she'll hear this. So I, I am accountable for everything I say, not just to the Lord. But uh, anyway, so my mom, I thought, why not go up and surprise my mom? So I booked a surprise ticket. I, I flew up and arrived, but I arranged a ride. I phoned one of her friends and said, I'm coming to the airport. Can you, can you have her pick me up? Have him pick me up. So I get to the airport, and this guy picks me up, and I phone my mom on my cell phone, saying, hey, mom, how's it going? And as I'm driving to her house, and she's like, oh, you know, she's pretending like everything's okay, but I can tell it's not. And so I'm like, hey, would you like some help? And she's like, oh, I think I'll be all right. I'm like, no, I'm willing to come up and see you if you'd like some help. Oh, no, just stay home. You need to be with your family and so on. And about a minute and a half, I arrive at the door. So I get out of the car with my friend David, and we stand in the garage, and my mom's staring at both of us. And she goes, oh, hi, David, how you doing? And he's like, good. And she keeps talking to David, keeps talking to David. And then um, David says, well, do you need any help, Sheena? And she goes, I brought a little muscle along with me if you want some help. And she goes, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And she completely didn't even recognize me. I'm standing right beside him. And then I said, hi, mom. And she went, oh, Andrew, right? 
but why didn't she have a clue? I'm standing right beside him, but her, in her frame of mind, she just got off the phone with me. I'm in Okotoks. I'm not coming up. She told me not to. The last thing she expects is me to show up, and there I am. Right? This could be very much Mary, right? She's so devastated in her grief and has no idea what's going on. The last thing she expects is a risen Jesus. And so, of course, it's the gardener, because who else could it be? Whatever the reason, when she heard Jesus' voice, she knew it was him. In verse 16, when he called her name, he said to her, um, Mary, right? And however he said that, all of a sudden awoke her to the, the, the presence of Jesus Christ. But not only did his name excite her, based on Jesus' response in verse 17, we know she actually began to cling to him. Um, if you look at verse 17, it says, Jesus says, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. Now Matthew 28 verse 9 tells us that actually she fell at his feet. She fell at his feet and wrapped herself around his legs with her arms. So you can imagine that, what that scene looked like. Now you could understand Mary's overwhelming joy because her single focus up to this point had been to find this dead Jesus. And now he, here he was in her presence alive, well, and speaking to her. So her fear of losing Jesus, which was once so great, uh, was overcome with her willing, this, this desire to hang on to him and just never let him go. But Mary's passionate grip on Jesus was partly energized by her lack of understanding. See, in her mind, Jesus had come back to stay. He had come back to be permanently with them. And the, I'm sure in her mindset, it was going to go back to the old things, the old ways, right? The way, the way things used to be. But Jesus knew this was not the case. And so he had to correct her thinking. And look at verse 17, what he says to her. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. You know, when you first read Jesus' words, Stop clinging to me, you might think those are harsh words. But I would suggest in the text that once we understand it more, these were not harsh at all. You see, again, Mary's biggest fear is that she'll lose Jesus permanently. But Jesus' response to her told her that she didn't have to worry about that yet. You see, the reason was is that even though he's gonna, he was going to permanently ascend to the Father one day in the future, that wasn't going to happen just yet. He's going to be sticking around for some time soon. Therefore, there was no need to cling to him because he was going to be with them for a little while longer. And, if you see, and so she'd see him again. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we actually know that he, he did resurrection appearances for 40 days. So he says, you know, don't have to cling on to me, for I haven't gone yet. I am, I am going, but not yet, Mary, so don't worry. You'll still, still see me some more, so you can let go. But at the same time, Jesus was clear. I am going. So it's not, not now, but I am going in the future. So things aren't going to return to the way they used to be. This isn't permanent. I do need to leave. And if you remember from our study in John, you know why he had to go? We remember this from the Holy Spirit's, the role of the Holy Spirit of believer's life. He said, I have to go because I'm going to send a helper to you. And I cannot send a helper until I leave. Again, remember why. If Jesus stays on the earth for three years, he can only minister to a small group of people in a small area. But if he dies and he goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit can indwell believers all throughout the world. So the presence of Christ can be in people on a massive, massive scale. But if he sticks just to Israel, not, not, you and I wouldn't get to experience the presence of God in that way. So he had to go because the helper had to come. And that was significant. 
But not only did he have to let her go because, because he, he knew that, or she had to let him go because he was going to stick around a while, and also he had a future mission to accomplish, she also had a mission of her own. See, she was to go and tell the disciples that I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. In other words, she was to go to them and tell them that Jesus had risen from the dead. He had been resurrected and he was going to stick around, but he was going back to his rightful place in heaven. And again, because the Holy Spirit had to come. Now, we got through that fairly quickly. Normally, we, we drag ourselves a bit more in the mud. But uh, the lessons are longer, and I want to spend some time on those. And so what, what can we pick up from the passage here that we need to learn today? I'm gonna, there's a multiple things we could talk about, but I've narrowed it down to two things that are very important for us as a church. And I believe the first lesson is this. The fact that Jesus chose to first appear to Mary after his resurrection demonstrates a special love and faithfulness to all believers. De raising, or showing himself to her first demonstrates a special love and faithfulness to all believers. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, based on her background, and two, the fact that she was a woman. Now, let's deal with this issue. First, that she was a woman. Why would that be showing special love and faithfulness to, to her or to us? Well, in a Jewish culture, it was a patriarchal culture, right? It was very much driven by what the men thought. In fact, women were even seen as unreliable witnesses in Jewish culture, and their testimonies were not taken seriously. Um, I phoned Dave Panton, who many of you know. He's a, men a mentor in our in our in our group amongst the pastors and good Bible teacher. He's spoken to us three times in the past. But uh, I phoned uh, Dave about this and Dave had an international Bible encyclopedia where it sourced a rabbinical writing from the time of Jesus that said that women could not even act as legal witnesses in Jewish culture. Okay? So when you see this, I mean, you see that women can't act as, Jew as, as witnesses in legal um, matters and they have very little, uh, test their testimonies mean nothing in the patriarchal society. The fact that he chooses to appear to her first shows how important he's, he, she is and how he's breaking the molds of what uh, this patriarchal society believed and about how God of the universe relates to broken people and people that are seemingly insignificant in that culture. See, he could have chosen to, to display himself first to the disciples. He could have gone right to the men, and he didn't. He went right to this woman. But not only a woman who, not only her as a woman, but a woman with her background. With her background. I mean, it wasn't like she was like the mayor of the town, right? She was a woman with a, who had been deeply respected, with, dis, disrespected within her culture. I mean, she'd been messing around with, with whatever, and she became demon-possessed. And again, so she would have been recognized as an idolater, and she would have been probably messing around with witchcraft, and she, she would have been just shunned by society. So he chose to re, re, appear to her first. And not only that, he gave her the first missionary uh, journey. He gave her the first responsibility in spreading the gospel message. He, said, he says, go and tell the disciples, I sent to my father and your father. Right? So, and what did she do? She goes and tells them in verse 18, I've seen the risen Lord. She's the first missionary given the first gospel message. And she's in the, and this woman with a shady background who is marginalized by our culture. Now, isn't that a picture of the gospel message? 
You know, God didn't save you and I based on our popularity. He didn't save us based on our abilities, based on our reputation in the community, based on our resume of education or in sports or whatever. He didn't care about how great or small the world saw us. He just based it purely on his love for you and I. Now this is really important because I know some of you. Some of you in here, and I say this with love, but you're both big self-condemners. You're big self-condemners. You never feel worthy of God. Uh, you, you can't forgive yourself for things of the past. You think, how could God possibly love me? Well, how can I be important to God when I look at, say, someone else in the church and I think, man, they seem to have it all together. Well, may Mary be a reminder to you of how God views you. Who did he use? A woman with a, who was not seen as anything in the culture, who had a tremendously horrific past, and he says, you not only get to see Jesus, me first, I want you to be the first one to carry my message to the world. So if you can use Mary in a massive way to be the first witness, and for his sake in the gospel message and as a missionary, what's stopping you? The only thing stopping you from being used by God in this way is you. <laughs> it sure isn't God. If you're redeemed by the Lord, you're usable by the Lord. You're valuable to the Lord. So the only person that's condemning yourself is you. It's not Him. It may Mary be a tremendous testimony for you in your life. The second lesson. Experiencing the resurrection of Jesus can be a tremendous means of overcoming grief. Experiencing... The resurrection can be a tremendous means of overcoming grief. You see, Mary's source of grief was the death of someone she lost. Someone she loved deeply, right? But once she had a personal encounter with her risen Lord, this brought hope to her, healing, and purpose. Now, I realize that you and I will likely never meet Jesus the same way she did. We'll never experience him in a risen body. I get that. But we can still experience Christ in a very meaningful way through the presence of His Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. You know, I know personally many people who have changed in their personality and in their mindset and their overcoming, like their overcoming of pain and grief in their past through an experience of receiving Christ in their life. Uh, she's not here today, but many of you know Tori. Tori actually said, when she received Christ, she said, I actually feel forgiven. Now, I never experienced that. I never, I never felt forgiven. But she says, I physically feel different. Receiving the Holy Spirit, experiencing Jesus in a new way, she felt that forgiveness. And I don't deny that in her life. I met a girl named Bobby uh, two weeks ago. Addicted to meth. Homosexual. Uh, gay woman. On the streets. And uh, I never met her on the streets, but I met her later on, uh, about two weeks ago in a coffee shop. She has been on meth for years, uh, been in that lifestyle for years, and uh, through Delane, who many of you know, came to Christ. Uh, she received Christ, and she's been off meth since that very day, even though she's never been able to conquer it in any other means before. And she said to me, she goes, I can't believe it, I feel like I'm on a high. <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit has made a difference in her life. There's an experience with her that's profoundly changed her. Profoundly changed her. Man, I know Janice and I were talking this week about her life. And, and uh, Janice said, too, I've been radically changed by the power of God. You know, many of us are hurting in here right now and grieving in our own way. 
Maybe it's like Mary because we've lost the death of a loved one. Maybe we're grieving because of past choices we've made. And we're having a hard time forgiving ourselves and letting go. Maybe we're grieving because we've been victimized by other people or whatever else may be the source of our grief. May again, Mary, be a testimony to you. The way she overcame grief was understanding the power of the resurrection and knowing it, having experience of Jesus Christ. And there was peace from that for her. And the same is for us too. We can have peace knowing that God has something for us in the future far greater than we can imagine. If it can change Mary, it can change Bobby, it can change Tori, it can change my wife, it can change me, it can change you. And many of you have experienced that yourself. Don't deny the, the power of God to make a difference in someone's life, including your own. And here's why we can have hope, and here's why we can, we can be excited about how we view life and how we overcome grief now, because we know this is temporary. We know this is temporary. This, mean, this world means nothing compared to what God has prepared for us. And look at 1 Peter chapter, three, or chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, which is the second coming of Jesus. Right? He has given us a new birth into a living hope. We have a, so right now, when you're alive, you have a living hope, not a dead hope. So when you die, you know where you're going. You know where you're going to be. So therefore, you can overcome grief in a different way because you know this life is temporary. You know it's temporary. And God, this is not the best God has to offer. God has something far greater to offer. And it's in heaven that we get this description in Revelation 21. He says, Then I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be there with them and be their God. And watch this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Again, experiencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes the way we approach grief. And the, re the way we approach the, the suffering that we have now in physical pain and so on and so forth. All because of the resurrection.